Hi, I'm Nikki, and here's a few things that are coming up here at Crossroads. Momentum is a six-week class that allows us to see what God has done in the world and how He impacts the world we live in today. To register for this class or to learn more about what Momentum is all about, go online to cccgo.com events and click on Momentum. It'll start Sunday, September 25th at 10.30 a.m. in room 225. Presence for Partners is a great way for everyone to get involved with the missionaries we support as a church. The Christmas season is coming soon and this is a great way to honor the work that these missionaries are doing day after day. It's really easy to be involved. After the service, just head on out to the atrium, look around to see what all of our missionaries are doing, and when you see a tag with a request on it, you can take that tag home and return the requested gift the following weekend. We know with just a little bit of help from all of our church family, we can make this Christmas season a great one for our missionaries. Thursday, October 7th at 6 a.m., the men's ministry is having a big breakfast for all of our guys here at church. It's a great way to get connected to one another and check out what the men's fraternity does throughout the year. It's gonna be a great breakfast, so come hungry. Let us know you'll be coming by registering online at cccgo.com slash bigbreakfast. Our next congregational meeting is next Sunday, September 25th at four o'clock in the chapel. It's a great way to see what direction we're heading and what our plans are for the near future. If you're wanting to have some questions answered and you don't get to make that meeting, you can always plan to meet us in room 225 at 4 p.m. on Saturday the 24th and at 9 a.m. Sunday the 25th. We hope to see you there. For more information on these events and the many others that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check your bulletin or go online to cccgo.com. Whether we know it or not, just about all of us have a natural tendency to run away from God. We may choose to run from God because we fear what He may think about things we've done in our past. We may run towards things in which we place a higher importance or value more than our relationship with God. We may run down a path that has us go through a predefined set of motions or blindly follow a set of rules that we think will bring us closer to God, but that actually ends up being a substitute for a real relationship with Him. In the book of Hosea, God uses the troubled relationship between a man and his wife to illustrate the fact that He is patiently pursuing us, no matter what we've done or how far we have run. God loves us regardless of how many times we've said to Him, Catch me if you can. Well, again, like Ross said a moment ago, I, want, I want to welcome those of you who are new with us today. If you're a guest, we just want you to know that uh, we value you and we appreciate you being here. Wherever you are in your journey with God, uh, we want you to know that uh, you matter to us uh, as a church. Now, I'm really excited about today as we begin this brand new series, Catch Me If You Can, where for the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a book in Scripture called Hosea. Now, the reality is we've all walked in here here today with different perceptions and thoughts and beliefs about God, faith, this whole Jesus thing that have really been formed by different things that we have been told or heard or even experienced in the past. 
some of us walk in here today and we view God kind of like a math teacher. I mean, you think that life is somewhat like a test and the point of it is to get by with as few errors and mistakes as possible. And so for the longest time, your image of God is that of a divine cosmic force who sits behind his big you know, desk and is looking to just mark your life up with red ink, right? And, and that's, that's where some of us come from. And maybe you can't identify with that, but you think of God kind of like a landlord, all right? You don't have much of a relationship with him, but you know, you do write him a check every now and then. And, and the only time you really communicate with him is when something goes wrong, when something breaks, when you need him for something. And, but for the most part, you've just kind of kept your arm, an arm's distance between you and him. Now, maybe that doesn't really describe you, but you view God kind of like, like your in-laws, all right? I mean, you think that God is just kind of awkwardly hanging around and you do whatever you can to just avoid him. And in fact, it's okay that your children are involved with him because that just means that you probably don't need to be. And, and so you've done whatever you possibly can to just stay busy so that you can just ignore him, right? I mean, we all have different images of God. And, and the reality is, whatever we believe about God, when we hear his name, when we think about him, that really determines our response to him. Now, I want to start out by just kind of leveling the playing field. I'm not singling anyone out here, all right? So, so understand that. A possible problem, though, with our perceptions of God is that there is probably at least some truth to what we believe, I mean, rarely does anybody have a completely false view of God that has been built on bad pretenses or inaccurate teaching. Yet what happens for us when there's just enough truth to what we believe, yet we have settled for something that is less than accurate? Back during the Civil War, one of the tactics that the, the North used to overthrow the Confederates was by spreading through their economy forged uh, money, uh, counterfeit money. In fact, in 1862, one legislator stood up in front of the Confederate Congress and, and he said that, hey, look, this issue of forged money being circulated through our government will lead to our defeat. It will be a destructive blow to us if we don't figure out what is real and what is fake. And you see, a counterfeit only works if it so closely mimics the real thing that it's tough to determine what is real, what is genuine, and what is not. And so what if that kind of describes how some of us view God? I mean, what if what we believe about him so closely imitates him that you may not know it, but the reality is it's kind of kept you from knowing him for quite some time. I mean, is it possible that a lot of us have, such a, have a view of God that is full of what's right and true, yet somewhere along the way there may be some inaccuracies, there may be some false misconceptions or, or expectations that aren't all that accurate? Now, the truth is, if, if you commit to being here for the next four weeks, more than likely, your image of God is going to be expanded. You, you may discover a God that you thought you knew that you may not know, or you may discover a God that you've never met before in your life. In fact, the whole entire story of Hosea centers around this, this call that God gave one of his messengers, a guy named Hosea, to go out and marry a prostitute named Gomer. All right, by show of fans, anybody learned that in Sunday school growing up? 
Yeah, probably not, right? I mean, can't you just picture sweet little Miss Betty saying, okay, class, let's all get in a circle here and let's learn about prostitutes today. Look over on the flannel graph. Who, who can point out Gomer to me? Right? That probably doesn't describe a lot of our experiences. Now, age-appropriate teaching is necessary, yet what ends up happening if we constantly overlook or censor certain passages in Scripture because it makes us uncomfortable is we risk forming an image of God that really only exists in our minds. And you see, the downside to a counterfeit thought, view, or perspective of God is that it always leads us wanting more. It always leads us totally dissatisfied. And again, maybe that describes some of us in here today. In fact, the storyline between you and God kind of goes like this. I have been running from him for a really long time. And so if that's where you're at, one question I just want to throw your way is this. What would change for you if you realized that what you had been running from was simply a counterfeit and not really the real God this whole time? And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is in the front half of your Bibles. Uh, and uh, what, what you might want to do, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That's our gift to you. Uh, if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it should be on the table right as you walked in a moment ago. Uh, again, shoplift that from us. All right, that is our gift to you. Take it home with you. Uh, Hosea is just right in the middle of the Bible. And today what we're going to do, do is pick up in chapter 1. All right. Now, as you're turning there, let me just give a little context and, and background to what's occurring here in this story. Uh, years before, generations before, uh, where we pick up today, God had selected a specific group of people whom he had chosen to love and who, whom he had chosen to have a relationship with, and he was going to bless them. And, and sometimes we might refer to these people as the Israelites, the Jews, the Jewish people, or God's people. Okay, it's all referring to the same people. Now, the relationship between the Jews and the God and God kind of went back and forth. It looked a lot like some of our relationships with God. It had a very on-again, off-again relationship with him. One minute they were serving God. One minute God was blessing them. But then the next minute the Israelites had turned to some other created God and they were choosing to worship that idol. And, and so, honestly, the relationship the Jews had with God looked looks a lot like some of our dating records back in high school or college. You know what I'm saying? I mean, one minute you thought you were going to marry him or marry her, then you got in a fight, and the next thing you know, you're breaking up. But then the next day, you're back together again. You know what I'm saying? That describes a little bit of how the relationship with the Jews and, and God worked. And, and so where we pick up today, God had uh, just kind of gotten tired of the Israelites' unfaithfulness to him. And so he sent a guy named Hosea to go and marry this prostitute as a way of alerting his people where their choices, where their lives were going to be headed. And so it was, Hosea was sent to them as kind of a warning. And so pick up with me. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, verse 1, here's what we read. It says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he, Hosea, married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
Now, this is the first time in scripture where God uses marriage as an illustration to describe our relationship with him. Now, Hosea, all throughout this story, represents God. The literal meaning of Hosea is salvation, which means to be rescued. Now, this story paints a picture of a loving God who is like a patient husband who relentlessly takes back his bride time and time again, even when she has no intention of being faithful to him in return. I mean, it's as if God told Hosea to marry a prostitute so that whatever perception, whatever image we may have of him would be totally flipped upside down and our perspective of him would be challenged. Yet at the same time, out of all the professions, out of all the roles in this ancient society that that could have represented the Israelites, God chose a prostitute. I mean, God was basically saying, hey, when you run from me, When you run from me, you're really giving yourself to something that is only temporary, something that is worthless. And so if Hosea's wife represented the Jews, do you know whom else she represents? Us. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, we're not singling out prostitutes, but but those uh, involved in prostitution is just an example of someone who has value yet is not living up to how God sees him or her. And so like the Israelites, we're, we're all guilty of this thing called idolatry. Now, idolatry is a term that can get thrown around here a lot that, that we wonder, okay, what, what does that really mean? And so for clarity uh, purposes, here's how we're going to define idolatry in this series, that it is about running from God toward something else, running from God toward something else. Now, we're all running towards something or someone to give us significance, worth, value, and meaning. Idols are the things that consume our thoughts, imaginations, and, and credit card statements, You see, idols can be anything from your children to your boyfriend or girlfriend to maybe a diploma, a degree, an amount of respect that your coworkers have towards you. Or or perhaps it's a certain skill or talent that you have. You see, your idol is what you think defines you. And a way to identify your potential idol is to simply honestly ask yourself this one question. What would make me feel like life wasn't worth living if I lost blank? Whatever that is for you. Author Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. Now, back then, the Israelites bowed down to golden calves. We see at different points in their story where they gave themselves to different cults or uh, other just uh, bizarre gods that were created in their culture. And so that's what idolatry looked like for them. And, and really, idolatry is just a cleaner, more f- you know, nicer way to describe prostitution. Now, here's why. Because we prostitute ourselves towards the idols that we think give us significance and meaning. And so that's what the Israelites were doing. They were bowing down to these created images, to these gods. They were giving themselves to them, believing that it was going to give them worth and value. And you see, whenever we Uh, Whenever we are guilty of idolatry, God's response to us is always jealousy and anger. It's a pattern that we continually see throughout Scripture. Now, one thing that we need to be careful of is to not associate God's jealousy with human jealousy, with maybe some of the uh, patterns of jealousy that we've experienced in different relationships that we've had, right? 
I mean, I used to always think for the longest time that, that God's wrath was kind of like the wrath that I would experience from ex-girlfriends. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, one time, uh, I'll never forget, I walked out to my Jeep that was parked in a mall parking lot right outside the Cheesecake Factory in Louisville, and there was an entire plate of dinner that had, that had been thrown onto my car that my ex-girlfriend had evidently thrown onto it a few minutes before. Yet God really spared me from her, all right? In fact, every time I hear Garth Brooks' unanswered prayers, I think of her. <laughs> and so human jealousy is more motivated by selfishness. It's, it's our way to defend ourselves. It's our way to maybe protect our emotions. And yet God's jealousy is very different than that. Here's a better way to describe how, how God uh, gets jealous towards us. God's jealousy is more about anger for us rather than anger towards us. God's jealousy is more about anger for us rather than anger towards us. And so when God sees people that have been created in his image who are valuable, giving themselves to things that ultimately can't satisfy, he responds with jealousy. I want you to check out what, about why he, he was so angry and jealous. The Jews were running away from him in Hosea chapter 8. Here's what he says. He just describes their pattern of idolatry. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With silver and gold, they make idols for themselves. Now catch this, to their own destruction. You see, in God's infinite capacity to know all things, he hated watching people he loved be deceived and consumed by lesser things. And so all throughout the book of Hosea, we see five different cycles play out between God and the Jews. The Lord would pronounce judgment upon them for their idolatry. And then immediately after, he would promise restoration and salvation to them. You see, where there was condemnation towards the Jews, God promised a way out. He provided a second chance. Look again at verse 2 in our text. God says this. He tells Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. Now here's the thing. It's not like Hosea didn't know what he was getting himself into on his wedding day. I mean, he was fully aware of the character of this woman that he was marrying. He knew that he was literally entering a relationship that would be full of, of pain and heartache and, and lots of sleepless nights and you know, broken furniture that'd be thrown at each other and lots of arguments and silent treatments. That's maybe why Gomer's name literally means consumption in sin. I got to tell you, one of the highlights of my day every single day throughout the week is kind of closing up shop here at the office, getting in my car, arriving at home, walking through my front door in the evening and just being welcomed by an awesome wife, three kids that I love and a golden retriever that is excited to see me. I am so thankful that I have a wife, Savannah, who creates a home that is welcoming and inviting and is safe for me. But Hosea never had that. No, in fact, his commute from the office to work was much different. It was filled with paranoia about which neighbor, coworker, relative, or friend was in bed with his wife. You see, this is a story of Hosea pursuing Gomer. It's not a story of Gomer pursuing Hosea. And whether you see it or not, this is also a story of God running after us, not us chasing him. You see, it's always been about what he's done so that we can never be impressed by what we do. Well, after Hosea and Gomer's wedding, they returned from their honeymoon. 
They probably went out to PetSmart and bought a puppy, and then God told them at that moment to begin having children. Now, most scholars agree that even though they were married, Hosea was not the father of these children. I want you to look at how one translation more accurately captures God's command. He tells Hosea this, go take yourself, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom with her. Now, the birth of a child, we know this, is supposed to be a moment of excitement and it's supposed to you know, create feelings of thrill. And it's something that, that you know, once we know the due date, it's something that we look forward to, right? Now, I've been told that kind of like a wedding day, that this is something women look forward to and plan for a really long time. You know, how's the delivery going to go? And so, you know, my wife is no exception to that. She's a planner. She got her bags packed preparing for that hospital stay whenever we found out that we were pregnant. And, uh, she already had someone on speed dial to come and watch the other kids whenever our uh, most recent uh, boy was, was born. And, and so she's a planner. But also with that, there are expectations walking into the, into the delivery about, you know, what it's going to feel like holding that baby for the very first time. There are also expectations for the husband, for the dad and his role of the entire delivery process, Right. Now, let me just throw out a hypothetical question for you uh, just, just for a moment or two, all right? How do you think it would go over if a husband, during the delivery process, accidentally fell asleep, all right? Because he had had a really long day at work, and he had been writing a sermon because Easter was only three days away, and he had recently stepped into a new role at church, and I'm just asking for a friend, all right? Uh, if you can identify with that, see me after service. We have a support group for you, all right? <laughs> and so what was supposed to be a moment of excitement and thrill for Hosea and Gomer was probably a moment of shame for them. You see, it reminded them of, of how broken their relationship was. And so Gomer gave birth to three children, two boys and one girl. God then told Hosea to give each child a significant name that symbolized his reaction to Israel's idolatry. Now, arguably, the most significant name that was given was to their last child, whom God told Hosea to name Loamai. Now, his name literally meant, not my people. You see, to understand that, you have to realize that in previous generations, God had established what's called a covenant with the Jewish people. Now, a covenant is simply kind of a fancy Bible word that describes a relationship between two parties. And a covenant represents a, a binding moment that the two parties will never leave or forsake one another. And so that was God's promise to the Jewish people. But you see, whenever God established that covenant, like Hosea marrying Gomer, here was a risk that God took. He knew that the Jews would have the freedom to leave the deal. And so by Hosea naming their third baby, not my people, he was helping them see reality that they were choosing to leave this covenant with him. I mean, the Jews were just unaware of the direction that they were headed and, and where their lives were headed. I mean, it's as if they, they were just unaware of what the future was going to hold of the results of their idolatry. About two weeks ago, my family and I uh, headed down to a lake in central Kentucky with my side of the family just for the afternoon. We knew it wasn't going to take that long to, to get there, uh, and I had typed the address into my uh, GPS on my phone. And so about two hours into the trip, right in the middle of Kentucky, I mean, we were in the middle of nowhere, all right? 
I mean, you know that you're in the hills of Kentucky when you've lost count of the amount of front yards full of toilet bowl flower pots and broken down cars in the front yard and UK mailboxes. I mean, you know, we just were lost. We didn't know where we were. And, and traveling with three young kids is a challenge in itself. And so by this point, there were lots of tears and screaming and pouting going on. And, and that was certainly the case for our kids as well. All right. And so several minutes later, we finally arrive at this location that I had typed into my GPS, but it was nothing but a dirt road in the middle of a forest that made a circle. And I felt like I was on the horror movie wrong turn. (laughs) I mean, this was not what we had anticipated. This is not what we had in mind. And so I called up my mom and dad. They were already at this house and uh, they told us, you know, you just got a little bit off course. Take this road, take a left here and here. And and within 30 minutes, we we arrived at uh, the location where we were supposed to be. Now, you might think that we got lost that day because I had the wrong address on my phone. But that wasn't true. I had the right address. It's just come to find out the calibration on my phone had been off. I hadn't done recent updates. There were new roads in the area. And so while, you know, for a good part of this trip, we thought we were headed the right direction, once we got to the location, it became obvious that we had, we had somewhere along the way taken a wrong turn. We had gotten off course. We had gone the wrong direction. And I think that describes our relationship with God sometimes. I mean, we have good intentions, Right? I mean, we, we know where we're headed, we know what we're aimed towards, yet somewhere along the way we have a tendency to just get off course a little bit. And so while we base ourselves, we judge ourselves off of our intentions, sometimes that's not always where we end up. And so sometimes that becomes obvious to us through a conversation with a friend, through obvious circumstances. And so God's effort in alerting the Jewish people that, hey, you're going to end up at the wrong location was by sending Hosea to speak truth to them, by telling them, hey, here's where you're headed. And so what I want to do just for the remainder of our time today is, is look at what this really looks like for us to run from God. Again, none of us would maybe even acknowledge we're running from him, yet it's a sneaky thing. It's a subtle thing. And, and so if we were to throw out just some categories of people who are running from God, what would this look like? Now, realize that uh, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm not trying to paint people in a corner, but the intention behind this is just to give us a, a better idea of what this really looks like in hopes that we will realize before we get to the destination that we've made a wrong turn maybe somewhere along the way. And so the first runner from God is what we're simply going to call the free rebel. All right, the free rebel. The free rebel is perhaps the most obvious runner from God because this person consistently makes choices that are outside of God's best for them. Now, a lot of us have probably been this person before. Maybe you're there right now. Now, here's how the storyline for free rebels typically goes. This person was raised in a good environment, in a good home, attended church, maybe on a consistent basis. He or she were taught the basic principles of scripture. But then once free rebels are put in a drastically different environment, maybe it's college, maybe it's their first real job, they begin to drift and slowly reject a faith that seemed to be so restricting. Now, the reason free rebels run are for a variety of reasons. Maybe they witnessed hypocrisy in the home or in the church. Perhaps they associate Jesus more with rules than grace. It could be that their faith was just never really their own. It was something they felt as if they could just siphon from their mom and dad. One example in scripture of the free rebels in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus described 
when the younger brother in this parable uh, in the lost sons, what, what he did one day to his father. We're told that this younger son approached his father and he demanded his inheritance early on. Now, during the first century, if you were to have done that with your father, that was the equivalent of wishing that your dad was dead. And so the younger son did this and The father did what his younger son asked of him. He then packed his bags a few days later. He moved to a city that was far away and he lived how he wanted for a time. Now beneath rejecting his father was simply a strong desire for this younger son to have control. You see, his desires had become his God, which forced him to do whatever it took to be satisfied. But it was only a matter of time until Jesus said that this younger son came to his senses and he realized that life in the distant country, life in that faraway place, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. It's really interesting that the father didn't fight his son when he demanded his inheritance. I mean, it's as if the dad allowed his son to go knowing full well that he was headed to a location that was the wrong destination. Now, Jesus doesn't say this, but I wonder if it was the father's patient response to his son's selfish demands that was the very thing that caused him to come to his senses and return home. I mean, of of all the different types of runners, I gotta tell you, this is probably one that I can identify with most. I mean, I look back at different chapters in my life when I ran from God, when I was rejecting him. And then I look at the moments when I started to come back. And do you know what what did it for me? I mean, it wasn't an argument that I had with my parents and realizing how wrong I had been. It it really wasn't seeing how sinful I had been and all the mistakes and, and where it was ultimately taking me. No, the thing that brought me back to the Lord is realizing that he had been pursuing me, he had been patient with me the entire time. A guy named Paul says it like this in in Romans chapter two, verse four. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And so if you have been running from God, I gotta tell you, nothing is gonna make you stop quicker and more than realizing that God is for you. That he's more interested in your heart than your behavior. That he's more focused on your future than he is your past. Here's another type of runner. We're gonna call him or her the wounded skeptic, all right? The wounded skeptic. Now the Bible tells us that God especially has a lot of compassion for this runner. Now this is is not to say that questioning or doubting God means that you're distant from him. Sometimes it can mean just the opposite, but wounded skeptics are people in our life that have maybe blamed God for some type of hurt or tragic experience and refuse to be told otherwise. There's some obvious stubbornness there. Now, perhaps you're convinced that God caused some pain to happen to you in a prior season in life. And so why love a God like that, you think? And if that's where you're coming from and that's what you think of God, I gotta tell you, I don't blame you for running. But is it possible, is it possible that that you're running from a God who doesn't even exist? Now, I'll be straight with you. If you decide to re-examine what your beliefs about God and match it up with scripture and faith, I'm not guaranteeing you that that you're gonna like what you find. In fact, chances are that you're gonna learn stuff about God and about yourself that offends you that you may not agree with. But you see, faith isn't a blind agreement. 
I'd even go so far to say that you're, if you're always agreeing with God and you're always understanding him in your circumstances, are you sure that you're really following Jesus? Because if you never have questions, you never have honest doubts, you wouldn't say it out loud, but you're inadvertently saying that God is just like you. And so sometimes honest doubts can be a good thing. I mean, even as a pastor, I get frustrated with God. I have moments where I'm angry with him. I mean, I have lots of questions that don't add up for me. I mean, have you ever been there before? And yet it still doesn't come natural for me to say, you know, just trust God and believe and obey and and everything's gonna work out okay. That's not always how it goes. But I gotta tell you, I am learning more and more that God is good and that he does continuously prove himself to be trustworthy. I don't always get him, I don't always understand him, but maybe my frustrations speak more about what's wrong with me than what's wrong with him. Here's the third kind of runner. We're gonna call this person the obedient moralist. Now this category of people is who Jesus had the biggest issue with, here's why. They have the appearance of knowing God, but truthfully, they're nowhere close. And the Israelites were guilty of this during Hosea's day. Look at Hosea chapter eight, verse 13. God says, the people love to offer sacrifices to me, feasting on the meat, but I do not accept their sacrifices. Now back then, sacrifices were outward and visual. It was an action intended to glorify God, to draw people closer to him that others could obviously see. But for the Jews in Hosea's day, it was like they had just enough, it's like they just wanted to have a friends with benefits relationship with God where their selfish motives were covered over by their noble efforts. You see, the Israelites had been inoculated. I mean, they were doing just enough right to keep them from recognizing their infidelity. I mean, they volunteered. They had scripture memorized. They fasted. They were in small groups. They were so spiritual that they never even confused the word lucky with blessed, okay? (laughs) Now, running from God in this way is a very sneaky thing. It's very subtle. Because we do just enough right to keep ourselves from realizing that we're doing something wrong. Yet maybe what started out as grace through faith all of a sudden morphs into grace through works. And so you might be an obedient moralist today, running from God, if you love comparing yourself with others because it makes you feel proud of what you've done and maybe how far you've grown as a believer. You might be an obedient moralist running from God if if you're bitter because you think people around you always owe you something if you're always looking for people around you to give you credit, if you'd rather win an argument than be helpful, if you scoff at other believers who don't believe the same way that you do, don't believe some of the things that you do, if you beat yourself up when you make a mistake or you miss a quiet time, if you think God is mad at you for some reason, you might be an obedient moralist. You might be an obedient moralist. If anything, I just said, angers you in some way, all right? And if that's where you're at, join the club. Me too. Last runner is what we're gonna simply call this, the impressive humanitarian. The impressive humanitarian. We love these people in our life. They're really nice, generous, and understanding. Impressive humanitarians can be very compassionate, forgiving, and selfless. And they may always be involved with some type of cause that is noble. And, and if these people happen to believe in a God, they would either say that everyone goes to heaven or only those who are quote unquote good people. Now, it may not be expressed out loud, but they're driven typically by some unforeseen scoreboard out there. 
And when you get down to it, typically impressive humanitarians have an awareness of something that is broken in this world. They realize the evil in this world, and so they make it their personal mission to outbalance it by just doing good. And if you were to ask them why, and if they're a good person, they might tell you, yeah, well, you know, I am a good person. I've never cheated on my wife. I deal honestly with my money. I only cuss during Colts games. And, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat of a, a kind neighbor. I try to be good to, to people that I work with. And my question is this. I mean, how, how do you know you've ever done enough, Right? This past week, I spent some time with Dennis Fisher of our church. Some of you may know him, but uh, Dennis was telling me how he came to know the Lord. And he told me, he said, for 44 years of my life, I lived a very self-indulgent, self-centered lifestyle. And I realized that I had done a lot of wrong in my life. Yet I, was all, I also had this awareness that a God existed. And he said, if you would have asked me during that chapter of my life, if when I died, I would go to heaven or hell, I would have been very honest with you and said, I'm going to hell. And so that kind of caught my attention, and I asked Dennis, well, what, why, why would you think that? Why, why did you think that? He said, because I realized all the wrong that I had done, and I didn't have enough time in my life to outdo everything bad in my life by doing a bunch of good. And so one Sunday morning in 1988, a friend of his happened to invite him to just some small little church, and he reluctantly agreed to show up, and it just so happened that the pastor that day was preaching on the thief on the cross. And if you don't know that story, it's when Jesus is being crucified, and there's a thief beside him who believes that he is who he says he is, and he repents, and, and he confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus responds to that thief by saying, okay, here's a promise for you. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. And so when the pastor got to that part in the story, he kind of paused, he looked up at the audience that day, and he asked a question that is forever changed Dennis's life. He said, let me ask you this question. How much time did the thief that day have to make up for all the bad that he had done in order to earn salvation? Well, Dennis realized in that moment that it's totally impossible to earn a right relationship with God. And so when the invitation was given at the end of service to invite Jesus to be Lord and Savior, he he instantly walked forward, and, and for 28 years, he's been faithfully following him. He's one of the most encouraging people to be around. He just possesses this joy about him that is contagious, and, and he's a very free person. Now, I didn't know Dennis before he came to know the Lord, but I'm willing to bet that he, that he wasn't as free then before Jesus as he is now. And so I wonder, what would his life look like today if he didn't understand the cross? If he didn't understand that God sent himself in the form of man to draw those in hostility towards him so that they could have peace with him. It's interesting that at the end of chapter one in Hosea, we see kind of a, a shift in God's tone taking place as he's talking about the Israelites to Hosea. I want you to pick up on what he says here as we, as we conclude things. He says, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. You see, right here, God was foretelling of a time when he would restore his people from their brokenness, from their idolatry and rebellion. Now, the culminating moment of this divine chase would happen when this one leader right here would be born of a virgin in a shack. He would live a perfect life for 33 short years, and eventually he would be nailed to a cross 
And you see, it's because of the cross of Jesus that we can have freedom. You see, the cross was God's way of putting himself between us and our idols. Now, I don't know what category you resonate with this morning. I don't know what kind of runner you are. And honestly, you know what? It doesn't really matter. We're all running from God in some way. But you see, when we look at the cross, we are reminded that we can't save ourselves. Yet there's nothing we can do to outrun our God. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Hosea chapter 2. And uh, if you want some just practical takeaways, i got two for you. Go ahead and read um, Hosea chapter 2 this week. Maybe do it every single day. Make it a part of your daily routine, Hosea chapter 2. We really want to understand this story. All right, you need to realize that by design, we've created this series to be one cohesive message. And, and so if you miss one week, you really miss out on an important segment uh, of the overall story of God in us. And so I just... I just want to challenge you, secondly, to come back next week and bring a friend with you. Even if you are far away from God and you want nothing to do with him, the reality is you don't want to show up at church all by yourself, right? And so bring a friend with you uh, as we pick up in Hosea chapter 2 next week. And uh, we are going to learn more about what this divine chase between us and God uh, looks like. Let's all stand up right now. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let me pray for us. God, I know that um, the story of you and us and the pursuit that you have been on to reconcile us and to restore us, honestly, is something that is, at least seems too good to be true for, for a lot of us in here. We, we, know, we know our shame. We, we know the things that we've done. We realize that, God, we're broken. And that, I mean, how could you, a perfect holy God, ever forgive what we did in college, what happened on that one night, what we did in that one relationship or, or whatever. And, and so we may hear and we may know, God, that you run after us, but it's something totally different to actually believe it and experience it. And so I just pray that you would take us on this journey, you would broaden our perspective of you and that you would help us see that because of the cross, we can't run too far because you keep chasing us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.